This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is away on vacation this week. Thank you for joining me here today. So are you ready to go maskless in indoor settings? That is my question for you today. The phone lines are open. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You just heard in Bob's news some of the details made official this past hour by Ontario's chief medical officer, who set March 21st as the day mask mandates will be removed in most settings, including schools. So that is the Monday after March break, which is next week. Excluded will be public transit, long-term care, retirement homes, other congregate settings, and healthcare settings. We also learned that the next step in Ontario's reopening is on March 14th. That is Monday, when mandatory COVID vaccination or test policies end for workers in schools, childcare settings, hospitals, and long-term care. And there's one more date. All remaining public health measures, directives, and orders will end April 27th. What do you think? Are we ready to go back to normal in what seems like a hurry? 416-360-0740 or one 740 Joining us to discuss, epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Dr. Sly, how have you been doing these days? Oh, very well, Jane. Thank you. Very well. I think the last time you and I talked, we were in the heat of the Omicron variants spread in the province. Uh, The hospitalization numbers were rising, as were the ICU cases. It is a whole different world right now. Yes, it is. And I think, uh, fingers crossed, let's hope that it stays uh, this new uh, new world. We, there's a lot of uncertainty around. In fact, Jane, since the very beginning, what, two years ago, doesn't it sound amazing? Uh, this has been filled with uncertainty, uh, f- false directions, uh, you know, a sudden, a sudden change of direction, I mean. Uh, nasty tricks played on us by the, the variant of the month. And so we can't let our guard down. This is the, uh, this is the, this is, I guess, the over, overview that we, we need to keep. Now, we received a statement uh, this morning from Dr. Peter Uni, the head of the COVID-19 science advisory table here in Ontario. And he uh, told Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, this decision on removing masking mandates is not based on science, not based on science. Your thoughts? Well, it's difficult to know exactly what goes on in the in the minds of the decision makers. I mean, I, I listen to the news much like everybody listens to your program as well. So we don't quite know what goes on in there. But just standing back from it a little bit and looking at the evidence, which is where we should all be looking, looking at the science, looking at the facts, it seems that perhaps this is a little hasty, shall we put it like that, that it's all most of it's going in the right direction those are the three indicators we use nowadays that's the icu uh, enrollment the hospitalization rates in general and the wastewater signal uh the first two are going down uh, they're what they call a lagged indicator so it takes a several weeks to to catch up from the cases the cases that we don't know nobody really has a good idea of how many cases there are in the community because nobody's really testing for that but the third one there, the wastewater, that was going down quite steadily. And that's, that's where you look at the virus in sewage. And uh, it, it's in some areas of the province, it's taking a slight turn back upwards again. And this might be, and this is purely speculation, due to the new sub-variant of Omicron, the BA2. We, we don't quite know about that yet. 
So um, the indicators are moving in the right direction, but it's not not quite firmly enough to be able to say it's the end of anything. We're still in the pandemic. I think we can look on the horizon and see this endemic coming, uh, and the indicators are moving in that direction, but we're not quite there yet. So understanding that you're not a political strategist, uh, and we are less than three months out from a provincial election, Premier Doug Ford made a point of saying this morning, ahead of Dr. Moore's announcement, that he wanted Dr. Moore to make the announcement, didn't want to steal his thunder because Dr. Moore's been working very hard and that this decision to remove masking mandates is based on science. Uh, Of course, you know, you can't, if you're a political watcher, can't help but think, okay, if this thing turns around and ends up uh, being revitalized, the whole COVID crisis, uh, Doug Ford will be able to say it wasn't my decision. It was Dr. Moore's decision. It was based on science. Uh, what do you think about a little bit of that dynamic that's happening? Uh, I don't think uh, these, these decisions are ever uh, um, missing those particular dynamics. They're always present. I mean, as long as the human beings live in communities, we're going to see those community decisions taking place. And that's quite understandable. But let's look at the, let's look at the, the reasons why I think we should be uh, a, a little bit, little bit uh, cautious, and that is we've got a March break coming up which is a splendid example for cross-pollination and sharing of all kinds of viruses in whether it's Fort Lauderdale or wherever it's going to be. Uh, it would be nice to see that over and done with before we made such a relaxation. I, that's from my personal point of view. Uh, we've got children under five, uh, very, very few actually being vaccinated in that age group. Um, well, none, got, right? Nobody under five has been yeah, vaccinated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in Canada, yes. In Canada, exactly, right. yes. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. So these are these are uncertainties. We've got um, uh, it's it's only March the first, isn't it, when the last relaxation of some of the measures took in place. So we're only about eight or nine days in from that. That's barely an incubation period. I like to see the the results of each of these relaxations uh, stabilized before we move on to the next one. You know, these are sort of what you might call common sense. They're not really deep uh, scientific rocket science. They're common sense approaches that anybody could could probably rationalize. So I guess the next question is, what is the rush? Why not wait till two weeks after March break? Why not start even a week later, um, March 28th? That would give it, actually, I guess it would be the Monday after that into April if we were to wait two full weeks, uh, because the kids do go back to school on March 21st, which is the day they don't have to wear masks back to school after their break. So why the rush? Exactly. Why the rush? <laughs> well, I, I, and let me ask that to our listeners as well. Does it feel like we're being rushed to end a pandemic, which is still a pandemic, as declared by the World Health Organization? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Just one more comment on, on the science about all of this. The leader of the Liberal Party. So here we are mixing politics and science again. Uh, Stephen Del Duca, he put out a statement this morning uh, going further uh, than even what Dr. Uni said, that there is clear unequivocal advice of the province's science table, experts at SickKids, Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, Children's Hospital at London Health Sciences, McMaster Children's Hospital, that we should wait as a province at least two weeks after the end of the break to review the indicators and make a decision for Ontario schools. Sounds reasonable, um, and and yet that is not what's been decided. Right, Jane, and I think the 10 days or 14 days is, is, a, is a kind of approach that I think has worked in the past, particularly recognizing this particular virus. One thing I will mention is that I think Dr. Uh, um, uh, Moore mentioned this morning, uh, he slipped in that it was a, it was a, a voluntary Approach. In other words, if, if a person or an institution or an establishment or organization wanted to carry on the masking, they can still do that. And I think this is, got me thinking of the old anti-smoking bylaws in restaurants in the, what, the 90s, I suppose it was, the early 2000s, 
when a lot of restaurants said, well, if you put in a, an anti-smoking bylaw, nobody will come to the restaurant. But in fact, the opposite happened. The, the smokers all went to the restaurants where they could smoke, and the non-smokers went to the... And so each, each division found the increase because people were being allowed to do what they wanted to do. And I think that might happen here. I think Ontario has had a very, very good response in masking. Uh, we've had a few loud, loud people banging pots and shouting, no masks. But most people, if you look in the shopping mall or on the subway or something, are wearing masks and they're, and they're doing it without questioning it. I used to live in Taiwan and I spent some time in, in Tokyo and Hong Kong as well. And in those places, people have worn masks long before anybody thought of a pandemic, just because it was a, a sensible thing to do to cut down some of the stuff that's in the air. So in, this, in that particular thing, I'll just mention this one aspect, and that is I think that, as we all know, the, the, the surgical mask, procedure mask, is really only to protect other people from yourself. But the N95 mask is really personal protection. There's a big difference when we come to this kind of topic between those kinds of masks. And so I think people who want to wear a mask in the future, certainly people with aged, aged uh, characteristics or they've got other heart diseases, lung diseases, kidney diseases, whatever it is, they'd be well advised just to make that decision and probably wear a mask anyway whenever they're in a crowded place. And the best masks to wear would be a, an N95 mask. Well, that was going to be my next question to you. What would be your guidance to individuals living in Ontario uh, when the mask mandate is lifted uh, on March 21st? Uh, would you say primarily elderly immunocompromised? Um, younger people can feel more confident uh, that even if they do get the Omicron variant or the subvariant, that they would just have symptoms of like a regular cold or sickness that they they would stay home from anyway. Well, I can only ask you to look back and say, uh, in the last two years, uh, how many people have you met who've had a normal seasonal cold or influenza? Virtually none. Uh, for the, we, you, we've seen the clearest uh, noses <laughs> yes. in living memory. Ironically, and yes. Dristan and the other things on the shelves. So these masks do work, and so why wouldn't it be a good thing to, to sort of wear them when you're in a public place anyway, uh, a crowded place or a, a concert perhaps going to somewhere like that? So yeah, a mask wearing I think will We'll, we will see that in the future. I think the, the fear here is a little bit where you're going to get some really loud, aggressive, anti-masking people who are now being given a license to shout at people wearing masks. We saw a little bit of that, unfortunately, especially up in even with the truckers' uh, stuff up in Ottawa. But I hate to see that happen. I hate to see people intimidated into mm-hmm. taking their mask off. I'm speaking with epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. He has been one of our regulars over the last two years. And, you know, on that note, we're actually on Friday. It will have been exactly two years, March 11th, 2022, uh, from March 11th, 2020, when the World Health Organization declared COVID a pandemic. Do you think, Dr. Sly, that COVID is about to be declared? an endemic by the WHO, or do we still have a ways to go globally? Well, it's inevitable it will be. It's moving in that direction. And everything we know about pandemics since uh, in medical history has pointed out that's the end point. Um, We're not quite there yet. We're still in pandemic mode, but we're beginning to see the changeover. In other words, we're beginning to see an agent that's so rapidly transmitted. In fact, uh, I don't know you realize this, that up until now we've been teaching people in school in epidemiology that, that the most rapidly transmitted virus has been measles, uh, according to its R naught value. This thing exceeds that. So this is going into the record books as being the, probably the most rapidly transmitted virus. But what's happening is it's being rapidly transmitted, but um, as the immunity builds, 
uh, we've had something like 7 million people have had their third dose on, in Ontario, in, uh, and we, some 4.5 million people have been infected as far as we can estimate. That gives you a very large proportion of the population of Ontario of some form of immunity. What we don't know is how rapidly that immunity wanes or gets weaker. We just haven't been around long enough to see that, but that will inevitably happen. So it means we're going to have to have a booster every so often, perhaps every year, along with the, with the flu shot, possibly. Every uh, October, we'll line up and get that double protection. We don't know. That's that's in the future. Yeah, but about hap- that, about the booster shot waning. You know, um, I remember us talking, you and others in the science community and the epidemiology community, saying that after 84 days, the third shot, the efficacy of the third shot will start to wane. Well. I had mine on December 19th, so technically around the middle of March, mine should start to wane. Is that, should people who got their boosters right away when they were offered, should they be starting to feel a bit nervous about uh, the timeline? No, there's a lot of, it's, 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 it's quite fair and reasonable to be uh, asking that particular question. I think there's so many variables involved. For example, uh, if you make a decision like that, then you need to also, lo- not decision, make a declaration like that. You almost need to look at the other characteristics of the people involved. Uh, the age groups will be very different. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, the, well, the, the actual, the, the, the the background of people generally, but also this is the this is where it, it gets complicated. We've got a thing called humoral immunity, which is what we can know as antibodies. People always talk about antibodies. We've also got cellular immunity in there as well. That's T cells and B cells who work in a slightly different, well, in a very different way in the body. And we think that the immunity from those cells are probably longer lasting and more reliable in the long term. Problem is we're going to have to study them over the next year or two, just to see the, the, the waning, the, the decline or the atrophy of, that, uh, of those protections. But these are, these are concerns that the people are re- researching right now to find out just rap- how rapidly this stuff wanes. But uh, all we can do is, remember now, if in two years, if, if we were onto a yearly cycle of boosters, I mean, that's, we've almost gone into ready for the next booster, if you like. And next fall, we'll all be lining up for that. So it'll become almost a regular thing. Okay. I I have so many questions for you, but I I don't want to take all of the air. We have our Zoomer radio listeners who want to get in on the conversation with Dr. Tim Sly as well. And again, the number is 416-360-0740 or 1-866-744-740. Pat in Toronto on the line. Go ahead, Pat. Good morning, Jane, or good afternoon, Jane. Good afternoon. I think the real issue here is for the unvaccinated, um, this is going to be going to raise the risk for them. And uh, they may think this is great that people don't have to wear masks, but they should have even more caution uh, and, uh, and, and, and be very careful because if the unvaccinated get this uh, virus, they've got a good chance that they're going to die, as we've seen. So um, that's the point to be made. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for that. That's very true, isn't it, Dr. Sly? The unvaccinated, if they get Omicron, I mean, in in the worst cases, they are most susceptible to dying, right? Uh, yeah, the the fatality rate isn't uh, isn't that high, but it's certainly vastly more than influenza. And I think Pat's point is really well uh, well made. I think if we project this into the future, say next next uh, fall, next winter, let's move it on down to that thing. We'll see the vast majority of people back to fairly fairly normal. Most people have got some immunity built up and began to take uh, boosters. And those those holdouts. Those holdouts uh, who are unvaccinated will almost certainly be the reason why we keep seeing little flare-ups, a little case here, a couple of cases there. It'll be the virus still moving around, zapping the remaining unvaccinated people. Now, remember, there's two kinds of people there. There's those who choose not to be vaccinated, and they're going to end up, as we've said. The others are those who would like to be, but their immune system's conked out. I mean, because they're on immunosuppressive therapy or they've had a transplant or they're on a cancer therapy or something. And unfortunately, they may be vulnerable as well. So that's why we need to protect those people and 
try and insist that the other people who are going to change their mind and get vaccinated. But as the, as the Minister for, for Health in, in Germany said a couple of months ago, take this through into the summer, and the only journals walking around will be those who have been vaccinated or those who are uh, uh, in immune one way or another, or those who have died. I mean, everybody will be either vaccinated or haven't been infected and recovered or not or not have uh, recovered, not have uh, survived. Right. Makes sense. Uh, and to be fair to Dr. Moore, as he was announcing today's lifting of the mask mandate in most public spaces, uh, not including transit uh, or in long-term care or other congregate settings, but pretty much everywhere else, he said that he will continue wearing a mask inside crowded places like the Eaton Center big box store. So even as he's announcing that you will no longer be legally required to wear your mask, he still will be wearing his mask. Let's go to Bruce in Guelph. Bruce, what do you think about uh, the mask mandate coming to an end? Well, first of all, I really enjoyed uh, listening to Dr. Slive. Listen a lot of times on your radio. He has that soothing voice and he's yes. really intelligent. I just love it. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I think, Jane, this is way too early. You know, every time we've relaxed stuff, we've gone back. How many waves have we had now? Is it four? Is it five? I've lost count. I, I, like, I, well, like Dr. Sai said, at least wait till two weeks after March break. I would say the end of April, because then the good weather comes. People are going to be outside, and, and it'll dissipate. And what bothers me is that, that I think this is getting more and more political now, especially with, with the, you know, the election coming up. And I think Dr. Moore, I don't know, I just feel that compared to, I forget the other um, chief medical officer's health are retired. Um, Dr. Williams. But he, he, yeah, he seemed to how do I put this, be not political, whereas I think Dr. Moore, when a rumor comes out about, you know, Ford can do this or this or that, the next day or two, Moore comes out and says something almost the same. So I just think he's listening too much the political way. Um, and again, I, it, it just bothers me that there's going to be people out there as soon as this mask mandate is lifted, and I'm going to still wear a mask, I'm, I'm telling you that, in crowded places, any time I'm out, and you're going to get... But get these people that are you know, anti-maskers saying, why are you wearing it now? It's not, you don't have to blah, blah, blah. It's already bad enough, like, like Dr. Sly said there, in the Ottawa protests, people going into the coffee shops, yelling at little girls that were behind the counter, uh, went into the mall, had the mall closed down for two weeks because they were screaming at them. I just don't get it why people need to do that. If, if you don't want to wear a let's mask... let's live and let live, fine. right? Live and let exactly, live. Exactly. Yeah. Bruce, thank you so much for calling in. Love thank the you. passion. Take care. Uh, and let's go over to the soothing voice of Dr. Sly for a final comment here today. <laughs> uh, I'm with you, Bruce. Uh, good, great comment. Uh, I'm going to be wearing a mask anyway. I wear a, an N95. It's a vented N95, but on the top of that, I've got a, a triple fabric mask over the top. So I've got the best of both worlds. But it's a choice I make, and I, I, I'm quite honest about it. But I think the point, too, also is that, is that it's good to listen to the independent voices here, the people who don't owe any allegiance to, uh, you know, employers and things. And I think that Dr. Moore is very an excellent physician. There's no question about his competency. But, of course, you can't really separate the, the person from the, the employer very often in these cases, and that's uh, unfortunate. So the independent, like the science table, for example, is an independent group. And uh, I listen to them quite a lot. Well, right. And they're saying that uh, masking should continue. So on an individual basis, that's probably the guidance we should take, right? Yeah, at least for the for the next uh, 10, 14 days. Okay. Let's see how it goes. And I would tread cautiously with a lot of optimism and hope, but not to not to rush outside suddenly, uh, open the, fling open the door and rush out because we don't quite know what's out there yet. Let's do it cautiously. Great way to leave it. Dr. Tim Sly, thank you, as always, for your time. Always a pleasure, Jane. Take care. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Jane for Libby and coming up next here on Fight Back, while there are only two declared candidates for the federal conservative leadership, the field is about to widen and maybe dramatically. We discuss with our panel of strategists next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host 
Jane Brown. Libby will be back next week. She is on vacation. Currently, there are just two declared candidates in the race to succeed Aaron O'Toole, who was ousted as conservative leader by members of the caucus early last month. Haldeman Norfolk MP Leslin Lewis is now in the race, along with Ottawa area MP Pierre Poliev, who declared he was running almost immediately after Aaron O'Toole lost his job. But there are many more who are expected to jump in. Joining us to discuss today on Fight Back, John McEtitian, conservative strategist and president of Bradgate Research Group, and Bob Richardson, liberal strategist, senior counsel to national public relations. Bob, John, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good afternoon. John, what are your thoughts on the two candidates for the conservative leadership so far? Well, you know, it's uh, there's nothing like what's next. Uh, So, you know, when you're the first guy in the race, you're the big story because you're the only guy in the race. And uh, Pierre started out as a front runner. And I think uh, um, I would actually challenge that and say yesterday when Leslin declared that uh, she would be now the front runner. And I think uh, both of their statuses will start to dwindle as we start to see a lot more people enter the race in the following week. Bob, I'll ask you the same question. Uh, I think they have four serious candidates in this race, so we're likely to have them by, uh, by, by the next few days. Uh, I think it is a good race. I think it's good for politics. I think it's good for democracy. And I think it will be good for Canada for the uh, Conservative Party to have a, you know, a big discussion about who they are and where they're going. Uh, and then I think Canadians will, will have uh, you know, a good choice in the next election. Um, uh, Mr. Polyev is a strong candidate. He's strangely almost the establishment candidate. Uh, Leslie Lewis is there, uh, very strong with social conservative. Uh, Patrick Brown, a moderate conservative, but I think could have strong 905 appeal and appeal with, uh, with new Canadians. And Jean Charest, uh, a, a trusted, uh, tested brand, if I could put it this way, could be strong with moderate voters and with, uh, with Quebecers. So, you know, looking as an outsider, that's a pretty good race. And I think, uh, I think, as I said, that's good for democracy. I think it's good for Canada. And let me put that to you. If you are a conservative supporter, if you would intend in the next federal election to vote against Justin Trudeau uh, or against Jagmeet Singh and in favor of the conservatives, who would you like to see lead the party that, uh, you know, that you would endorse? Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or 1-866-740-4740. John, Bob just mentioned there, uh, they need to figure out who they are and where they are going. How about I ask you those questions? Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, going to be the biggest discussion of what the Conservative Party stands for at its core and what its vision for the future is. It's, it's what leaderships are always about, but we've had three leaderships since the party was founded, and I think this will be uh, the most consequential debate on those issues that we've ever had. Do you think it's unclear, those two questions, about who the Conservatives are right now in 2022? Uh, I, I think so, in part because the memberships always, between for parties, memberships are always highest after an election cycle where you have um, lots of nomination meetings or when you have a... Uh, a leadership because new people come into the party and then they dwindle down to the base or the core. Uh, and for conservatives, that means a lot of grumpy people on a good day. So uh, it's going to be quite interesting and exciting. I think the rumored number for current membership is around 170,000 people. And I think you'll see that number uh, go higher than it ever has in history. I think this is one of the great moments most people don't realize in elections. All they get to do when they go to the polls is pick the candidates that the parties pick and and choose among the leaders that the parties pick. This is an opportunity for anybody who's interested in who the next leader of the conservatives are to not just have an opinion, but pay $15, get a membership and have a vote. Well, I think we have one of those people on the line right now, Bill in Toronto. Bill, go ahead. Yes, I am one of those $15 guys. And, so, and what are your thoughts in the early going in this race? Well, you know, I just like Pierre Polyev. He His economics and his sensibilities are exactly what this country needs right now. 
Leslie Lewis has got absolutely great features, maybe not her type. She will be the leader of this party and could be the first woman prime minister of Canada. Well, I guess that's simply not. Second, second. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, maybe she'll last more than a couple of months. But Patrick Brown and uh, Sheree, you know, Patrick Brown is, is, is a failed commodity, and Sheree is, is yesterday's man. So it, it's a clear, uh, Holly Evans is going to take it. Leslie Lewis, this time, I hope that the Conservative Party actually honors her and, and gives her a, a position of importance and respect what she brings to the table. Okay, thank you, Bill. Thanks for your call. Uh, what about that Jean Charest? Certainly, he is a big name from many decades in politics. Um, he would also, should he win the Conservative leadership, uh, Bill or Bob, this would be his the third different party that he's been involved with at a, in a leadership capacity. Well, I think that's a little unfair to Mr. Charest in that there is no Conservative Party provincially in Quebec, and he was asked to become leader of the Quebec Liberal Party by both Conservatives and Liberals in Quebec. It is a vehicle for federalism in Quebec, not uh, a vehicle for partisanship, if I can put it that way, between those two groups. So I think you can uh, attack him if you don't like his views on issue, but to call him, quote, a liberal uh, because he was uh, uh, premier of Quebec is a bit much. It's like Christy Clark in B.C. It's called the B.C. Liberal Party. Again, it's a confederation of both liberals and conservatives there. So I think I think that's, uh, I you know, I think that's fair. Uh, one of the things that I think here is the conservatives have a big question. They have been dominated. Um, by certain members of parliament from Saskatchewan and Alberta um, for the last particularly two leaders. Uh, that hasn't worked. And they, they have a real big question before them. Do they continue uh, to go with that formula, which I think is reflected more by Mr. Polyev, or do they look at having a bigger, broader tent and bringing in uh, uh, more people? And that's probably reflected a little bit more by Mr. Brown and Charest. So I think those are the, that's the broad question that is going to going to come up here, and uh, it'll be an interesting one for conservatives to take a look at. Liberal strategist Bob Richardson and conservative strategist John McEtishan with us here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jane for Libby, John. Let's talk about Aaron O'Toole, and only for the reason that uh, you know, for those who are considering running to take over the conservative leadership, should they? Try to do what Aaron O'Toole, or should they do the opposite of what Aaron O'Toole was? And you know, and a lot of people accused him of trying to make everybody happy, and in the end, making no one happy. Yeah, I, I, that's one way to characterize it. I mean, uh, if we go back to the leadership, I think you have to say that Aaron ran the best leadership campaign of the four candidates last time. There wasn't, uh, I, I don't think there was a journalist in the country who wasn't uh, describing Peter McKay in the same way that they're driving, uh, describing Pierre today as the prohibitive front runner. Uh, the reality is campaigns matter, races matter. Um, this campaign has a lengthy membership sign up period and then a lengthy period to be able to go out and campaign and talk to the people who joined the membership. And I think what we're going to see is something that's uh, quite exciting. And, uh, you know, I I don't think anybody knows how this is going to end. But uh, the best part of it is going to be the conversations we have as we attract hundreds of thousands of new members. Bob, what about the timing of all of this? So the next conservative leader will be chosen on September 10th. In the meantime, we have this horrific war being waged against Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. We are coming out of the pandemic. We are dealing with all kinds of inflationary issues, some of those tied to uh, Vladimir Putin's war. Uh, In terms of finding the next leader for the Conservative Party, is it even going to register with a lot of Canadians? Well, I mean, look, it's a very busy news cycle, and it will continue to be for for the next few months, so they will have to compete against that. But I think, uh, you know, with four good candidates in the race, I think there'll be some genuine interest there. And and let's face it, uh, whoever becomes leader of the Conservative Party does have a shot at becoming Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, most, uh, you know, uh, in the life cycle of most governments now 
at the very longest end or sort of seven to 10 years. And Mr. Trudeau is, I believe, in his sixth or seventh year as prime minister. So, you know, it's it's competitive. It's a competitive political environment out there. And whoever becomes the next leader of the Conservative Party certainly should be considered a significant candidate for prime minister of the country. Bob, let me ask you this, since you are the liberal here at the table, in terms of attracting swing voters, uh, those liberals who go back and forth between voting conservative and voting liberal, who is is the most attractive candidate to those individuals? You know, I, I I try not to tell other party what leaders they should be picking because <laughs> uh, I don't know the internal uh, uh, machinations and mechanics that go on. Uh, I happen to think uh, uh, both uh, Patrick Brown, um, who has been a moderate conservative a member of parliament, an MPP, uh, I think a pretty successful mayor of Brampton, um, is a good candidate for them. I think he's shown that he can command strong support among new Canadians where they where they have kind of uh, failed in the last couple of elections to kind of really make inroads there so I think he uh, I think he's an attractive candidate for them and I think Mr. Charest in Quebec built uh, big coalitions two or three times out you know to get himself elected as premier of Quebec three to uh, three times among francophone voters among anglophone voters and among allophone voters in Quebec so he's demonstrated that, too, as well. We can't say that about Leslie Lewis because she's just a new, uh, you know, she's only been elected to parliament for a few months. And Mr. Polyev hasn't been in a national leadership uh, uh, role. So I would say those two would be the ones that would uh, would concern me the most at this point. Uh, John, you know, people do speak highly of Leslin Lewis, and yet she holds some fringe viewpoints, including that uh, children, she was skeptical about children being vaccinated against COVID-19. Um, she is pro-life, which is not the, the viewpoint of most Canadians. Um, so, you know, would, is she somebody who would be attractive to a liberal voter who was potentially considering voting conservative? Uh, well, look, these things, as I said a moment ago, the reality is they, they are about policies. They are about, you act about the swing voters. And, and I'm going to say that swing voters are more of an issue during a campaign for the next uh, you know six months, between now and September 10th. This entire conversation within the conservative family is, first, who do we think can best win? And there will be very different opinions on what that is. Certainly, uh, Pierre's approach to politics and Charest, uh may be the two widest uh, differences in style and in tenor and policy. And this is where people get to decide. So I, I you know, the, the idea of the swing voter, I'm much more a believer that uh, the biggest dynamic in elections, except for a big sea change one like the last Ontario provincial, is actually the party supporters who either choose to stay home or come out depending upon whether they're motivated. And I think we're going to see that in this race. There are going to be people who have had memberships, uh, but haven't, you know, in the past, but haven't had it perhaps in 10 years or 15 years because they haven't been happy with the direction of the party or where it's going. The question is, how many of those are going to come home versus how many of those are just going to continue to either not vote or become liberals over the course of time? But I think if we go back to our core, you look at the highest number of votes we've gotten in this country and where we've been the last couple of elections, there's a lot of people to come home. And I think, uh, you know, I agree with Bob. This is going to be an exciting race with real choices. And uh, nobody can predict what it's going to look like on September 10th at this point. We will leave it there. Thank you both for your comments, thoughts and perspective. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. John McIntyre, conservative strategist and president of Bradgate Research Group, and Bob Richardson, liberal strategist, senior counsel to national public relations. Jane for Libby, and coming up in the final segment of today's Fight Back, the latest on Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine and how it's being fought unofficially by the West. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host 
Jane Brown. Libby is away this week. Canada's prime minister announced more support for Ukraine today in the face of Vladimir Putin's almost two-week-old war against Ukraine. Justin Trudeau has announced Canada is sending another $50 million worth of military equipment to help Ukrainian forces defend themselves against Putin's Russian military. The prime minister outlined the contribution in a joint news conference with Germany's new chancellor in Berlin today as part of his four-day trip to Europe. Is this enough? And what more should Canada and other nations be doing to bring a quick end to this horrible war? Joining us for discussion today, Dr. Elliot Tepper, a veteran professor of comparative politics and international relationships uh, relations at Carleton University, and Dr. And Dora Komiak, not a doctor, but Dora Komiak, volunteer, board member, and president of Razom, a nonprofit Ukrainian American human rights organization established to support the people of Ukraine in their pursuit for a democratic society with dignity, justice, and human and civil rights for all. Well, that just about says it, doesn't it? Let's talk about what's happening in Ukraine right now. Dr. Tepper, Dora, thank you for being here with us today. Sure. Good afternoon, Jane. Uh, just, Good afternoon. Thank you. Just horrible, uh, particularly in the port city of Mariupol, Dr. Tepper, uh, the humanitarian crisis, the, the civilians who are being killed, they can't leave. We're now d- hearing about mass graves because they cannot have individual burials. So many people have been killed. Just the, the war crime scenario is off the charts. Yes, and I'm afraid that going to get worse rather than better, as Plan A for the uh, Putin invasion has clearly gone off the rails, uh, kind of like a blitzkrieg and then an Anschluss. They were going to sweep in, politically decapitate the government, uh, perhaps assassinate the leader, and then put in a puppet government, which would declare that, boy, we really are one people uh, with Russia. That didn't happen. It's not likely to happen. It's not going to happen. So the stepping up of violence is the next step. Uh, there is the plan B is to just reduce the country to rubble and, and uh, pound them into submission. And we see the war crimes uh, basically right before our eyes. The the incident you just referred to there is the shelling of a maternity hospital, and it's the tenth recorded shelling of a hospital uh, so far, plus we also have reports of shelling of uh, of shooting at ambulances as they go through, clearly marked as ambulances as they go through the streets trying to help. We have a situation, therefore, undoubtedly where um, war crimes and crimes against humanity are going to be documented uh, in, in, in real time. But your question is to, will this end quickly? It doesn't look like it. Beat the nation into submission. Uh, yeah. Even for dictator Vladimir Putin, what is the strategy, the long-term strategy behind beating a nation into submission and killing its civilians? The, that wasn't the initial strategy, of course, right. but it's a, it's a tried-and-true strategy for, for Russia. They did it with the capital of Chechnya when there were problems there. They reduced the city, capital city to rubble. And uh, it's tempting to say that what we are likely to hear out of Syria is welcome to our world because this kind of behavior of attacking hospitals and other civilian targets from the air deliberately intended to demoralize the population was a tried and true tactic which has kept Assad in power as a result of the war being tipped in his favor by Russian intervention. So, Dr. Tepper, to say that Russia is now officially a terrorist state is not an overstatement. Well, officially means it has to be declared. <laughs> so, uh, but there's no doubt they're raining terror on the on the population. What you opened up with was uh, the situation of attack on a hospital. The International Red Cross, a very staid organization that measures its... Uh, I've worked with them a bit in, in other places. Uh, they measure their, their vocabulary very, very carefully because they have to stay neutral in order to do their job in conflict situations, and they've called this apocalyptic. <laughs> so that's uh, that's the kind of state of play. What we have, to answer your question earlier, is there anything that can bring this to a quick halt? Mm-hmm. It doesn't look like it. 
the sad fact is that uh, the West, on the one hand, let's be two-handed on this one, on the one hand, has really done an incredible job under the leadership of Joe Biden, to give him credit for it, of suddenly pulling together um, NATO and what I'm calling the new Europe. Europe is suddenly waking up and pulling together in a way that was not considered um, even thinkable before this. And in eight days, in eight days, Jane, the the, um, package was put together to cripple the Russian economy. Uh, It'll take, however, a while for that to take effect. Dr. Elliot Tepper, uh, you know, I also want to ask you about uh, the long term scenario, both from, you know, the NATO and West's point of view and uh, from Vladimir Putin's point of view. Uh, He's primarily in the East at the moment. Uh, presumably, uh, if, if he does successfully roll over the East and, and uh, you know, you hope that the West doesn't allow that to happen. What do you think is the mission beyond that point? Well, to go back to the Western side, on the other hand, uh, and, and it'll, it'll impact the final, uh, the final outcome of this war. There is no actual assistance being given to Ukraine to do the fighting. There will not be a uh, no-fly zone. There's not going to be any troops on the ground from the West, apart from volunteers who are going on. The Ukrainians are on their own in fighting this because it's been made very clear that this war cannot be expanded to NATO. That is, if Russia attacks any NATO country, it will lead to a NATO response. But Ukraine is not part of NATO. Therefore, uh, what happens to Ukraine now is very possibly a very long, drawn-out, and unfortunately very brutal attack to try to subdue the country with some military supplies, including from us, as you pointed out, being poured into the country to allow them to defend themselves on their own. Therefore, Ukraine is facing the might of of Russia. That might has has turned out to be um, not nearly as effective as the Russians thought it would be, There's a lot of commentary about, hey, we thought that army was invincible. Now they're all bogged down. But the air power has not yet been applied uh, in in large measure across uh, the country by Russia. So I'm afraid we're into a a long slog, and I'm not sure how this is going to end. I want to ask you about what more can be done behind the scenes by the West to help Ukraine. But uh, first, over to Dora Komiak of Razom. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about your organ. Well, first of all, Dora, do you have family, friends in in Ukraine? Yes, we have volunteers from day one in Ukraine and in the United States, and we work with volunteers, individuals, and organizations throughout the country. Our goal is to build a prosperous Ukraine. The way we're doing it now is different uh, because, um, to jump on what you were just talking about, the way to, the way to stop the the shelling of civilian institutions and hospitals and, and innocent people is to stop the shelling. So there's really one guy who can make that happen. I just want to make sure we don't lose sight of that, that it's, uh, you know, the, the bombs are falling on my friend's apartment from, you know, from the guy next door. Yeah. Um, and so we have volunteers that are working now. We've been able to mobilize very quickly and get, um, tactical medical supplies into the hands of people who literally need to stop the bleeding. And uh, we have more on the way, and we're working with hospitals. Now, it's unfortunate that we've had to do that instead of doing the work we had been doing with culture and education and civic engagement with the immensely talented people in Ukraine. Um, that there's just, And I think that's what the world is seeing, that there's this, um, is what I've been seeing in my 30 years of traveling to Ukraine and working there. The, the talent and the innovation and the determination of people there is really something that contributes a lot of good to the whole world. And that's really what Mr. Putin is just trying to literally blur the smithereens. Help us understand, uh, and your organization, Razom, is one of many, many uh, helping people in Ukraine on the ground with humanitarian relief. Mm-hmm. How helpful is this group international effort in assisting the people there despite the the bombing and the shelling? Well, um, it is very helpful. And, and, and as Dr. Tepper said, the, the new Europe, 
and the, the world community of people who believe in human rights and want to have rule of law, the support is tremendous and incredibly appreciated. Because the last couple times Russia has attacked Ukraine, if you look back in history, um, that Ukraine did not have this many people seeing it. People didn't understand it. And so it could just get erased uh, off the map more easily. I, it is so seeing the show of support, seeing people coming out in the street, seeing the cultural institutions perform Ukrainian com- music of Ukrainian composers and, and, and rock concerts. And that is really, I'm hearing a lot from family and friends that they, they appreciate that. Do you think they this do is, want the yes. bombs to stop falling, though, so they need to protect the sky. Do you think that all of this international effort, this solidarity with Ukraine is chipping away at Vladimir Putin's psyche in a way that, you know, uh, I'm not saying that he would put up his hand or wave a white flag, but, you know, what is this doing to his mindset on his mission? Well, you're asking have a possible a question, figuring out the mind of yes. Vladimir Putin. Right. Sorry, Dora, did you wish to say something? Well, I guess I guess the question is, do you think all of these international efforts, Dora, do you think that they are working, uh, including all the economic sanctions, the McDonald's of the world shutting down all their operations in Russia? Will any of this uh, lead to Putin relenting? I don't know. I can't put myself in his brain. But what I do hope it is doing is feeling the world, the civilized world community to more cooperation and support because this is an attack on human rights for all of us. And we're going to need to get along and we're going to need to find a way to keep, keep strengthening those institutions. And those of us who like to live in a civilized world with rule of law need to learn from people in Ukraine about how to protect those institutions and how to nurture them and how to grow them because it's not going to stop here. And so what I hope these sanctions are doing, yeah, sure, in the short term, I hope it causes the people in the Kremlin to come to their sentences, but I'm not holding my breath for that. What I do hope it does is galvanize the world community and the civilized world community, or should I say the non-crazy world community, Mm -hmm. to realize, oh, hey, we need to we need to pay attention. We need to take care of each other. We need to behave a certain way uh, that 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 protects that respects our human rights. I hope that's what happens. Yes, ironically, the actions of this dictator are bringing the world together, uh, Doctor Tepper. And we're, we're this will be the last question. Um, and I gave you a moment there to think about it. What more can be done behind the scenes by the West to help Ukraine fight this war? A lot is being done visibly. That is the whole idea of the closing off of the country as a pariah in terms of financial uh, access to the world, but also squeezing the oligarchs and uh, squeezing the public. But squeezing the oligarchs to squeeze Putin seems to be the name of the game. There is a lot of behind the scenes going on, I think, in terms of getting materiel into the country, into Ukraine. The brave, I want to emphasize that, they Ukrainians are now uh, thank you, Dora. They're really on the front line of, of democracy versus autocracy, and uh, they're being gallant and, mm-hmm. and showing us all. But there's also a, a surprising amount of activity about keeping the lines open for possible mediation. Uh, of all things, Israel is playing a key role there. Turkey may play a role, but China is the big player here. When China decides, really, this is a threat to them, uh, perhaps there will be an intercession that will make a difference with Mr. Putin. Very good. The conversation continues. Thank you, Dr. Tepper, and thank you, Dora Komiak, for your time. Thank you for the opportunity and for covering it. Dr. Elliot Tepper is a veteran professor of international relations at Carleton University in Ottawa, and Dora Komiak is volunteer board member and president of Razom, a nonprofit Ukrainian-American human rights organization. Jane, for Libby, and tomorrow on Fight Back, we commemorate the two-year anniversary of the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.